zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing The Postman Always Rings Twice, released May 20th, 1981. It was written by David Mamet, based on the novel by James M. Kane, directed by Bob Rafelson, and released by Paramount Pictures. In 1934, crime novelist James M. Kane's The Postman Always Rings Twice was published. It was adapted overseas in France as Le Dernier Tonon in 39, and in Italy as Ossession. <laughs> no, that sounded French again. In 42. <laughs> in 1946, Tay Garnett directed the first American adaptation starring Lana Turner and John Garfield. While working together on Five Easy Pieces, director Bob Rafelson pointed Jack Nicholson in the direction of Kane's novel, insisting that Nicholson's career would parallel that of previous Frank Chambers' John Garfield's. But before watching this movie, I didn't know who John Garfield was. That's all right. <laughs> I'm just saying that Nicholson's career, I think it was maybe good that it didn't follow his. because No, John Garfield did good. Is he really famous? I mean, he sure. became the He's president. not famous now. <laughs> He's famous mostly for hating Mondays. I get it. It's a different Garfield. And sending Nirmal to Abu Dhabi. What? (laughs) Nicholson liked the book enough to bring it to the last detail collaborator Hal Ashby for a new adaptation, but MGM owned the rights at the time and demanded Raquel Welch play Cora until the deal fell apart. Later, recent Hal Ashby collaborator Robert Blake was attached in the Frank Chambers role. In 79, producer Andrew Bronsberg brought the project to Rafelson, and Nicholson was quickly reattached. Glad the Robert Blake one didn't happen. Yeah, that would have been (laughs) obnoxious. 128 actresses auditioned, including Leslie Ann Warren, Brooke Adams, Kim Basinger, and Tuesday Weld, but Rafelson's early prediction of Jessica Lange won out. Meryl Streep was actually offered the role and turned it down. I think Jessica Weld would have been a nice nice. Tuesday Weld? That's exactly what I said. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, my you brain, combined them. My brain combined them. <laughs> Ilya Kazan did a screen test for the Nick role that eventually went to John Kolakos. Actress Lindsay Krauss came into audition for the Cora part and overheard Rafelson discussing David Mamet's work and then brought up that by coincidence she had recently married the famous playwright. <laughs> Rafelson brought Mamet on board for the screenplay, his first screenplay. Rafelson's intent for the film was to emphasize the erotic aspects of the novel, shooting intentionally for an X rating after the early adaptations had bored him dreadfully. Did, did you listen or read the book? I did not read the book, no. Oh, okay. I, I was just curious because I'm like, you know, the, the previous version, you know, wasn't very gratuitous at all in terms of... I did read the book. <laughs> okay. I just remembered. <laughs> I just remembered. <laughs> I'm very tired. <laughs> Well, I'm just curious how sexual it was because this one took took it to uh to pretty high levels. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's not as erotic as this film is, but it's definitely more erotic than the 1946 version. Okay, but that's probably because of 
ratings boards issues at the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm just curious because I was like, seems like a weird story to add that much eroticism to. Yeah. Like- <laughs> Nicholson was very complimentary of Lang's performance and was certain the film would be a success, but unfortunately it landed in that same Rolling Stones article, Big Bucks, Big Losers, with a budget of $13 million, three of which was spent on Jack, it made a mere $6 million in its domestic box office. Ooh. Lana Turner, the star of the 46 version, claimed never to have seen the film because she was turned off by the trailers and what she deemed pornographic trash. She was disgusted by it and she wouldn't have anything to do with it. She watched it every night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then she went to make Witch's Brew as her last movie. <laughs> Under the opening credits, we see pinpricks of light against a dark morning. A man smoking a cigarette walks down the road and manages to thumb a ride. Hours later, the hitchhiker, Frank, played by Jack Nicholson, and his ride, played by Christopher Lloyd, are stopping at a gas station. Frank offers to buy the man a cup of tea inside, but he seems eager to get back on the road. So you think this uh, Lloyd insertion is just purely from... One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest? Yeah, I think so, yeah. As they step into the cafe at the gas station, Frank orders a bromo for Lloyd and a large breakfast for himself before ducking into the bathroom. Included in Frank's meal is a side order of toast. Give me a bromo for my friend here. I'll take a small steak, two eggs on top, some fries, juice, and a side order of toast. Yes, do it right away. A request that was denied in our previous review of a Rafelson Nicholson film. I'm sorry, we don't have any side orders of toast. In the bathroom, we see that Frank probably doesn't have any money because he barely has half a cigarette left in his pack. His plan is clearly to wait out the impatient driver from in here. He peeks through the door a couple of times to verify the man is gone before returning to the cafe. Frank takes a seat at the bar and chugs the glass of orange juice sitting there before anyone could take it away from him. He starts into his breakfast toast before asking about the man he already saw leave. Where's my bike? The way you left. Frank pretends he was involuntarily abandoned here. The man running the diner places Frank's steak and eggs in front of him, and he takes a few bites before continuing the con. Oh, no. Hmm? What? He took my wallet. I left him the raincoat in the car, and I can't even pay you for this. He has successfully finagled a free breakfast out of the cafe owner. The man asks Frank where he was headed before he got stranded here, and Frank says that there was a gig as a machinist lined up in Los Angeles, but all the info was in his wallet. The owner, who we will come to know as Nick, tells him that he can finish the meal. Nick steps back into the kitchen and tells his wife Cora, as played by Jessica Lange, that he thinks he found a new mechanic to work here at the station. Nick Papadakis and Frank Chambers officially exchange names. So I, I was not familiar with this movie at all. Okay. Uh, this is the first time I've seen it. So I'm trying to figure out what this movie is about at this point. Yeah. And I thought for sure that this was part of a con, not that he's was waiting for that guy to leave, but that it was planned for that guy to leave. Oh, so you thought Lloyd was going to be a character for longer. Correct. Because like, Christopher Lloyd is going right. to yeah. there's, there's be more to this. And like maybe that they were casing the joint like to see like, because it's, it's an isolated place, probably pretty easy to rob. Yeah. Um, and this was like part of the plan. Uh, In the 46 version, the guy that drops him off is actually the district attorney. Interesting. So that when he comes back, when they're doing the court cases and everything, he's already like had a conversation with the guy. Mm -hmm. He knows him. So they have like a relationship with each other. But, um, and this is just a passerby who never comes back into the story. 
So I had a, you know, a similar issue. Like I hadn't seen it before. Um, but, uh, you know, I watched the older one after I watched this one. Um, actually, technically, I watched it midway through because I had to, I was watching it on an airplane and this one was so not appropriate to watch on an airplane <laughs> that I had to switch over to the older one. <laughs> so uh, I, uh, I I watched that one um, and then came back to this one. And then I was actually bothered by this con man thing because I feel like the character it paints him in the wrong light. The character is way less of a con man, I think, in the other one. That's true, and a lot more charming. Uh, maybe just in general, I I don't really find Jack Nicholson a very charming character. Sure, uh, I do, but that's. I mean, I like him. I think he's an amazing actor. I don't find him charming, and and like the kind of guy that. I would fall head over heels for, you know, like, and make stupid choices for, which is coming up, you know? And so I was really bothered because like, I'm like, they need to make him more appealing. And instead they like, they just set him up to kind of be the sleazeball. And I don't think they ever undo that. Yeah. Cause for the whole rest of the movie, you're second guessing his motivation for everything. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and honestly up, you know, right up until even the end, I was, you know, like you're just not really sure he's sincere about anything. Although I did feel that way toward the end of the 46 version where I was like, now they're making this kind of a gray area where I don't know what's happening on purpose and what's an accident. Yeah. What what sense do you, do you, do you get from the book? Do you remember if he... He's not a con man at the start. No? No. Okay. I, th- I think it's a weird choice for the character because I think they, they need to make him the kind of guy that you'd make dumb choices for. Right. But he also is supposed to be kind of a drifter with a criminal past. So. I get that, but that. But there, that's different than the, specifically scamming this guy as his right, introduction. Right, but the, but there there is even a kind of con man that is so slick that you would like be like, I would do anything this guy says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to make a lost reference <laughs> the, that we will all get. Yeah, yeah, you'll <laughs> it all, won't be lost on us. You'll, you'll all know the character of Sawyer, right? Who is the con man? Yeah. Based on I, the I've famous only con seen man Tom snippets Sawyer. of episodes, which means I have no concept. I didn't know he was a con man. Mm-hmm. Spoiler. <laughs> Nick offers Frank a mechanics position here at the station. Frank bristles at the offer, insisting his Los Angeles gig is a better deal, but he thanks Nick again for the delicious meal, and Nick credits the food to his wife. When Frank sees Nick's wife, Cora, he's immediately second-guessing turning down the job. Nick explains that it pays 8 bucks, and it comes with room and board. I'll tell you what, Nick. I got to track my guy down in L.A., and if it don't pan out, I take you up on it, huh? Either way, Frank promises to send money to cover breakfast, but before he leaves, he steals Nick's pack of cigarettes from the bar top. Frank manages to hitch another ride outside, but before he gets in the car, he looks back at the gas station and considers the mechanic gig one more time. We get a brief montage of Frank really not knowing what he's doing with cars that reminded me of the very recent montage in the Secondhand Hearts film, where Robert Blake seemed new to the job also. Where he's like throwing up in cars while he's cleaning them and then gets fired at the end of the day. I didn't realize that was a montage of him not being good at fixing cars. It just seemed like he didn't know what he was doing. Like he lied about a mechanic gig because he wanted them to hire him as a mechanic here. Sure. But that would have been like him actually wanting to get a job. Well, I think he needs money. He can't steal Yeah, I know, but forever. like at that point in the conversation when he said that there was a gig that he was trying to get to, I don't think he ever intended to stay. 
Yeah, I don't know. So I don't think he had planned to be like, oh, yeah, if I say I'm a machinist, he'll hire me as a mechanic. I think he just wanted to sound like a professional businessman and not the kind of guy who steals breakfast for a living. Yeah. But either way, I agree. I think his intention was to leave, but seeing the wife caused yeah. him to Yeah, and he was like, hold on a second. Can I pretend to be a mechanic here long enough? Later in the cafe, we see an insurance salesman pestering Nick into expanding his policy. Around the back, Frank finds Cora sorting the pantry and asks where he can find soap. She tells him to look elsewhere, and when he opens the door to enter the pantry, a cat gets in, and Cora has to chase it out. She offers him a cup of coffee, and he accepts. So, uh, I'll already call you. I guess you can call me Cora. We cut to that evening where Frank and Nick are splitting liquor and Nick cannot hold it. They head upstairs together and when Cora hears them coming, she pulls the curlers out of her hair to look nice for Frank, presumably. Nick tells her to get another bottle of wine. While Nick and Frank chat, Cora keeps making eyes at Frank over Nick's shoulder. Later that night, Frank turns off all the lights in the guest house and spies on the married couple dancing around in their bedroom. It's a windy night and the sign advertising the Twin Oaks station collapses in the breeze. The next morning, Nick and Frank prop up the broken sign against the post, and Frank recommends he replace it with a neon sign. You know what I do, Nick? Uh, I get a new one. Oh, I'm getting new one, sure. And that son of a bitch hang it first time he paid for it. Neon. Something flashy, you know what I mean? Bring some business in. Neon, what's a neon? Huh? Neon, you know, uh, little colored tubes. Tubes? Yeah. Oh, it's a neon. Yeah, neon. Neon. Nick is reticent to hire anyone to install anything because salespeople seem eager to rip off foreigners. Sometime later, Nick heads into town for parts and leaves Frank alone with Cora at the station. Immediately, Frank locks the door and corners Cora in the kitchen. When she moves to unlock the door, she sees two customers have left already, assuming them closed. It's money down the drain, isn't it? I suppose you could look at it that way if you wanted to, yeah. It's not your money either, is it? She tells him to unlock the door, but instead he forces himself on her. At one point he's literally choking her against the wall. Their struggles with each other take them back to the kitchen, where he starts kissing her, and she seems receptive for a moment before breaking away again. And, and this is like... We've we've just come off of this con man scene, and now you know I, me not knowing what's coming. I'm just like Jesus. Is he gonna rape her? You know, like I don't really know this character well enough, mm-hmm. and I I don't really understand Cora very well. So. I think we're supposed to take all of our instruction here from the soundtrack, which is swelling in a romantic way to imply that this woman has been sex starved or good sex starved for a very long time while she's been here with nick well that's a lot of heavy lifting with the way he's forcing himself on her and i i get i guess i also watched this scene a little disjointed because at this point i'm trying to like turn my laptop away from Mm -hmm. the seat next to me so (laughs) nobody's watching this and then eventually i gave up on that (laughs) yeah he comes at her again but she shoves him down out of frame and he lifts her and lays her across the table. She knocks everything on the table to the floor to give them room and then invites him in. Frank's hand is quickly massaging her crotch and then her breasts. She undoes his belt and they are quickly having sex. The music swells to give this moment implied importance. 
The indication is that she has not had sex like this in many years and has been waiting for it. Sometime later, Nick is back, and while he prepares for bedtime, Cora watches out the window at Frank's guest house. Nick tells her that he got a surprise for her, but the surprise is a smoking jacket for himself. <laughs> Cora says she'll be right back, and she heads downstairs. She collects the cat on her way to the kitchen, where she finds Frank with his hands in the cookie jar, literally. She sets the cat down and pours him a dish of milk, but Frank sneaks up behind her and grabs her around the waist to start kissing the back of her neck. The, the milk was for the cat, by the yeah, way, yeah. not Frank. <laughs> oh, then I misunderstood the scene completely. <laughs> Just, sometimes you use pronouns and I have to interject. <laughs> yeah, I don't know this cat's pronouns, that's true. <laughs> Nick calls Cora back upstairs, but Frank won't let go of her. Eventually she escapes. We cut to another day, and Nick is leaving the station again with designs for a brand new neon sign. Later, in his guest house, Frank is practicing flicking playing cards into his hat on a bed, a skill we will see perfected by Phil Connors later in Harold Ramis's Groundhog Day. Oh, I thought you were going to call up Jack Nicholson's character of the Joker in Batman. Does he throw cards into a hat in that? Doesn't he? He's got, he has the deck of cards with him. Does he? No, you know what? I'm thinking of, you know what I'm thinking of? Groundhog uh, Day. No. <laughs> no Again? I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of when Jack Palance dumps the cards into the hat oh okay. <laughs> don't forget your lucky deck <laughs> cora pops in to check on him do you like doing something i'm doing it frank looks her dead in the eye and tells her if she really wants to be with him she should go pack a bag and they'll leave for chicago right now she laughs it off and he repeats himself go back a bag we're going to chicago now we cut right to them in Los Angeles, walking up to a bus depot. After purchasing their tickets, they sit down to wait for their bus, and Frank offers to grab Cora something to read. He grabs her an issue of Photoplay magazine, which was a long-running film-focused magazine that started in 1911 and ceased publication in 1980 while this film was in production. <laughs> they, got, they got the rights real cheap. Yeah. <laughs> Before he returns to her with the magazine, he notices a group of guys gambling in a back room. Sometime later, Cora finds Frank gambling with the men, probably confused by his disappearance. When he notices Cora watching, Frank asks her for a little extra money to up his bet. He thinks he has a shot ripping these guys off, but he needs more betting money. All Cora sees are some very obvious red flags, and she refuses to hand over her hard-earned money. Unable to convince her, Frank instead cashes in their tickets to Chicago for less expensive tickets to San Francisco so that he can bet with the difference. Frank tells her to sit and wait for him, but by the time he wraps up the game with everyone else's money in hand, she's gone. In his defense, he did win. Right, he did. <laughs> well, okay. And so as in Baltimore Bullet, the other gamblers try to force Frank to continue gambling because it isn't a fair win unless he keeps gambling. Hey, mate, I want a shot to get it back. <laughs> Fuck you, Commodore. Hey, I won this money. All right? So then he, like... Like, we cut from this scene to him bringing, like, Cora the money. Right, because like, it was her money that he was betting with. Right, and but kind of, like, throwing it in her face back at the diner. Yeah. And I get, I'm really confused by this because I feel like everything that we've done up until this point, we've sort of set him up, we set him up to be a bad guy. We set him up to be a con man who's forcing himself on her, who's like, run away with me, you know, with for, leave your husband and uh, give me a bunch of money to gamble with. Right. But then this happens and he wins 
and then and, and then he shows back up at the at the cafe like I'm just I'm like who is this guy and what are we trying to learn from this moment yeah back at the Twin Oaks gas station Nick is arguing with the installers over his new neon light which doesn't seem to be working in the rain as they promised it would the men offer to check the hookup at the junction box Frank finds Cora and returns the money he won with hers. He's obviously offended that she didn't trust him to win the backroom gamble. But I think that's the logical choice based on what she knows about him. Right, yeah. but that's not logical to him. Even though it could have been a 50-50 chance, to him it was 100% that he was always going to win it because he did win it. And so nothing else is even possible in his brain. So then he should he, he should be mad at her right, right. now. Right, that's yeah, what he okay. is. And so he came back and he's like, fuck you for not trusting me. Look at all the money. I told you it was going to work out. I don't know why you didn't believe me. Yeah. And she seems genuinely apologetic, even though she was 100% right to leave him there. She tells Frank that Nick would have followed them anyway. Frank tells her that they could have made it on their own, but they need to be on the same team. And she takes that thought a step further. I gotta have you, Frank. It was just us. It's just you and me. What are you talking about? I'm tired of what's right and wrong. I feel like he makes a leap here. Cause no, that, she has no, that look in her eye. I don't know, man. I was not thinking that when she said that. I think she was just like, I'm going to leave my husband for some crazy dude. And he went to murder. The fact that she that she doesn't flinch at his line, though, means that that's what she was talking right, about. But yeah. I feel like he kind of made a leap there. Yeah, I, I don't know. When, when she said he'll find us and then if it was just you and me, I was like, oh, okay. If there was no him to find us. And then she backs away from him with the crazy grin on her face and eventually turns to answer Nick's repeated shouts for her. Frank walks away, a little rattled by the encounter. He's just like staring off into the distance like, what the fuck did I just get myself into? Sometime later, Nick and Frank appreciate the functional neon sign together at night. Frank waits for Nick to head upstairs and then ducks back into the garage to fill a small canvas bag with assorted ball bearings. It's so simple. It's, it's all, all ball bearings now. <laughs> uh, you should see my shoes. He crosses the property and hands the bag to Cora and talks her through the plan once more. Oh, going twice for danger. And the door. Lock from the inside. That's right. Down the ladder, yeah. that's it. Yeah. She's shivering with anxiety and he grabs her to calm her down. They kiss passionately. So I think it took me watching this scene like three times to understand. In two versions of the movie. In two different versions <laughs> of the movie, and then coming back and watching this one again because I missed parts. And I was like, oh, from the inside as Of the bathroom. Of the bathroom, because I was thinking of the front door, and I'm like, mm-hmm. what good is that going to do you? And like the bathroom door closed like he's alone in there. Right. I get it. While Cora locks up the diner downstairs, Frank moves a ladder around the side of the house and leans it against the roof, though he leans it weirdly precariously, like on an incline, in such Mm -hmm. a way that if anyone were to try to climb down this, it would for sure fall over. (laughs) Cora takes the sack of ball bearings and moves stealthily upstairs and into the bathroom where Nick is showering. Out front, Frank waits by a car for a warning honk. 
He notices an approaching motorcycle cop. Too late to honk the corn on... Honk the corn? That's a, that's a euphemism. He notices an approaching motorcycle cop. Too late to honk the horn unsuspiciously. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't know if he noticed it too late or if he noticed that it was a cop. And he's just like, oh, I can't just honk right if now. If I just start honking, it's going to look weird. Turns out the guy pulled over to compliment the new sign. While they talk over the recent addition to the station, they hear a cat snarling from the rooftop, and the cop reveals himself to be a bit of a goofball here. There's a damn cat up there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, they sound a lot like babies crying sometimes, don't they? Yes, they do. The cop leaves, and Frank intends to warn Cora against taking action tonight, but simultaneously... Frank honks the horn, Cora swipes at Nick with the ball bearings, and on the rooftop, the cat freaks out in a burst of sparks at the junction box that blinks out the power of the building. Cora is freaking out because she got a solid swing on Nick, but not accurate enough to kill him, just to knock him out. A second swing would leave suspicious skull damage. She shouts for Frank's help and he tells her they need to save Nick because a cop saw everything. But really, the cop didn't see shit. Yeah. There's no reason to call the ambulance here. And if anything, I think the cop is a good witness. Yeah. In your favor. Yeah, you were outside. The ladder was there for a reason that you came up with right away. Well, that didn't happen yet. He urges her to phone an ambulance, and we cut right to the hospital where a doctor is recommending more tests. Well, and, and it's weird because, like, Jack Nicholson is, like, cradling Nick in the bathtub. Right. Like, come on, buddy. Like, I, I was like, is he is he legit sad? or I is think he- he's worried that if this goes down the way that it just did and he's only, like, maimed or something, that ha- a cop having just been here is going to be a problem mm. for them. But I feel like, okay, in my mind, they're trying to get him up, like, it's better that he lives. Unless he knows that she hit him. Which right. they're worried more about in the first movie than they are in this one. Wait, which is why I was so confused. I'm like, isn't it better if he doesn't live? And then you could just be like, yeah, you saw the cat up there on the roof. The power went out. The guy fell in the shower. He's dead. Yeah. That's a logical thing that happened. And I, I was also getting really mad at Cora shouting, I hit him. I hit him. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. shut up. He might not have seen what you did, but he's definitely hearing it now. <laughs> On the way home from the hospital, Cora confirms that Nick doesn't know what they tried to do. All he knows, it went dark. She also credits God with turning out the lights because if they'd committed the murder, the cops would have caught them for sure. They suddenly notice the bike cop is following them back to the station to review a prospective crime scene. He views the scene first from outside the house, commenting specifically on the ladder leaned against the roof. He climbs it to find the dead cat beside the open fuse box. Hey! Covers off his fuse box up here. I'd say that sucker stuck a paw in it, fried him deader than hell. Yeah, how about that? Huh? Must have been those guys that uh, were working on a sign today. So, they didn't leave the fuse box open as part of this plan. No. no. I think and the cat did get electrocuted by that way, so yeah. none of this implicates them in any I way. I know! It's really weird because they have a terribly convenient thing to that get them out That they could have just this. said, yeah, he bled to death in the shower. Yeah, it's weird. But maybe it's like, well, the power went out. Why didn't you go check on him? But they did. And they got him to the hospital right away. Right. But we're saying that they should not have done that. If they didn't do that, 
then wouldn't they say, well, why why did you wait so long? Yeah. Like you would have noticed right away because this all the power went out. Right. I just it's just it's weird because it seems really like a good coincidence that all these yeah. things happened. And I don't understand. And the why cop doesn't so know when the power them. went out because the cop left before that happened. The cop seems to buy the story and rides on back down the road and the two engage in an immediate and intense sex session. We cut forward some time and Cora is packing a suitcase to go visit Nick at the hospital. Frank offers to drive, but she asks him to stay and mind the station. Manning the station alone, Frank is immediately beset upon by an enormous troop of Boy Scouts. Frank is in the kitchen throwing together two dozen egg salad sandwiches and a bunch of pies when Cora returns. We cut to some time later, Cora is doing some shopping. They climb into a booth at a record store to listen to some jazz, and later they ride together in a rowboat, laughing all the way. That night at the station, Cora says she doesn't want to make love tonight. Frank reminds her that this is the eve of Nick's return home, but she is insistent. She's foregoing their last opportunity. We cut to a party at a restaurant celebrating Nick's escape from the hospital. Frank interrupts a conversation to drag Cora out of the party. It's apparently been four days since their last sexual interaction, and Frank wants an explanation, but Cora tries to tell him it's over. Nick crosses the party to give a speech, singing Frank's praises for the quick thinking that got him to the hospital and on the road to recovery. This man saved my life. I found this man. At home that night, Nick is very drunk as Cora undresses him in bed. He makes her massage his feet. He throws her on the bed and kisses her violently, and we cut to Frank packing his shit to leave forever. He wrinkles up an unsatisfactory note to Cora just as she pops in to check on him. She immediately clocks what he's doing and has a little breakdown criticizing him for leaving, even though she's declared their relationship over. Yeah. Cora says Nick's hospitalization gave him a new outlook on life, and he suddenly wants a family with Cora. She sobs at the prospect. How am I supposed to have his baby? I can't have his baby. The only one I could have a baby by is you. He tries to calm her down with an embrace, and it's a touching moment, but her cries have broken loose a lot of mucus, and her whole face is dripping with snot here. It's very authentic. Yeah. And gross. Also, <laughs> also, I have no feelings for these two people who would come to murder. murder a guy? <laughs> yeah. Well, it also just, you know... You don't sympathize with them even a little bit? Nope. <laughs> they tried to kill a nice person who gives free breakfast to people. Oh, that's bad. Actually. Not only that stuff, but it's like, I don't even feel like their love is authentic. And so it's not, so it's just gross. Like I don't think it's, it snot, feels like lust. It doesn't feel like love. Yeah, exactly. But that's what I'm saying is like these things that they're doing, you're not rooting for them right. at all. We got to Cora pulling a car up to another gas station in the middle of the night. Nick is laughing hysterically in the passenger seat. A young man comes to fill up the car, and Nick tells the man that they are headed to Ventura for a change of scenery. The full tank of gas only comes to 144. Those were the days. Yeah. Back in the 40s. Frank walks back to the car from the station bathroom, seemingly intoxicated. First, he tries for the driver's seat, but Cora forces him into the back, and the station attendant backs her up. They drive out of the station and start heading up a mountain road. Nick keeps groping at Cora while she drives. She tells him the car is overheating and pulls it to the side of the road. She asks Frank to fix the car, but he's pretending to be too drunk to respond. Eventually, Nick offers to take a look when Frank leans forward and cracks him in the skull with a lug wrench. Is he dead? <laughs> he cracks Nick once more for good measure. Frank shoves Cora back in the car 
and he leads her down the road to a cliff face. Frank shoves Cora back in the car, and then he leads her down the road to a cliff face. She gets out, and they both push the car over the edge. We get a fake slow motion segment where the footage gets really steppy as it bounces down the mountain, but unfortunately, it catches on a small bush a few hundred feet down. Even though it's a bit shaky, we can see in the slow motion footage that a figure falls out of the passenger side of the car down the cliff, though I'm not certain if that was on purpose or not. Frank and Cora climb down to the car and the body is still inside, so that was not, we were not supposed yeah. to see that. Mm -hmm. Frank washes his fingerprints off the lug wrench and whine and then advises Cora to smash the bottle across his face. She swings it just hard enough not to break it, which is actually like as hard as you can hit a person with a bottle. Yeah. Because if it breaks, it actually hurts less than if it doesn't break. Sure. Then the two of them wail on each other for a bit to inflict convincing injuries, followed by a bizarrely timed fuck session here on the hill. Frank tells Cora to climb up to the road and sets about dislodging the car. In the cab, he tries to check something first and leans on the steering wheel, which turns the tires and sends the car tumbling before Frank can escape. Cora watches the car roll downhill in horror and then scrambles for the road to scream for help. So in the in the old one, yeah, she makes a, a, a big point of getting her purse out of the car. Right. Does she do that in this one? She has a purse. She has her purse on her, but it's not like a big thing to go back and grab no. it. And it's not a clue like it is in the first movie. Yeah, it's definitely like a, a big gotcha moment in the first movie. Yeah. But I, I guess I want to make the point of like, ladies hold their purses like all the yeah, time it's not a clue and mm. like i could definitely get in an auto accident while holding my purse and still randomly be holding it when i got out of yeah. the vehicle it's it's a natural reaction that you have you're you've trained your body to hold onto your purse and take it places with you right exactly and so, so like it's if, not a hint when yeah, someone so brings in this it movie, with them it's like i i'm glad that it's not a thing because it it shouldn't be a thing. But in the first movie, they're like, well, she had her purse with her and it was so clean, even though all of her clothes were dirty from the accident. It's like, so what? What does that mean? Yeah. What are you implying? We cut to a hospital where Frank is in a bed recovering. A man comes to ask if he's ever been to San Francisco or Buffalo. And Frank stupidly answers in the affirmative before realizing he shouldn't be answering this man's questions. He seems convinced that Frank intentionally killed Nick based on a laundry list of previous arrests. He tells Frank that if he tries to plead innocent, that the prosecutor will seek the death penalty. Frank asks what reason he would have to kill Nick, and the man points out first the obvious answer, Nick's beautiful wife. Buddy, I saw her. I might kill for her. I'd kill for that. And secondarily, that Nick very recently took out a life insurance policy. Frank is genuinely caught off guard by the insurance news, and it reframes his thoughts on the whole arrangement that Cora orchestrated. The $10,000 life insurance policy issued on Nick Papadakis by Pacific Reliance his wife, the sole beneficiaries. That looks familiar, Frank. <laughs> Earlier in the film, we did see Nick sitting down with an insurance agent, and it actually seems to me like Cora wasn't even gunning for that money. Like, mm -hmm. neither one of them knew that was happening. Yeah, I don't think they did. In fact, I doubt the investigators would even be looking into the case if an insurance company didn't have a huge payout on the line. Like, I think that this is a situation where if he didn't have an insurance policy, they would have said, yeah, it was an accident. Yeah. In exchange for not pressing charges, the prosecutors offer Frank paperwork to sign that, in effect, denies any involvement in Nick's death and places the blame squarely on Cora's shoulders. Later, Michael Lerner shows up in Frank's cell as the defense attorney, Katz. He tells Frank to direct all questions to him. He shows Frank the contract that he already signed and advises him not to sign anything else. In court, 
the prosecutor asks an expert witness to confirm that the broken bottle from the scene was used to kill the victim, which is not true. Yeah. He also asks that the man rule out the possibility that Nick's injuries were sustained in the tumbling car, and he does. Katz points out that the expert witness is an employee of the insurance company who has incentive to lie about the facts that would prevent the payout, but the judge overrules the objection, which, which is insane. It's totally ridiculous. Yeah. If This is another thing that bothers me. I, feel. I mean, maybe at the time that would have been acceptable. Maybe. But it's like, sorry, that's the way it works. But now he'd be like, yeah, There's you're no totally way. right. He, he wouldn't have even been able to get on the stand as an expert right. witness. He wouldn't have been able to be in the jury box. <laughs> like, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and, and yeah, it's 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 just a long string of things and i'm like everything is in their favor i don't understand why it doesn't go in their favor yeah the prosecuting attorney rises to present the contract that frank signed which specifically makes accusations against cora she starts shouting in the courtroom and Katz tries and fails to quiet her outbursts eventually he tries to get the judge to throw out frank's contract since it was essentially signed under duress but again the judge has picked a side He's probably already getting paid out by the insurance company. As a last-ditch effort, Katz has no choice but to change Cora's plea. Your Honor, under the circumstances of this ruling, I have no alternative but to withdraw my plea of not guilty and to plead Mrs. Papadakis guilty as charged. Again, Cora panics, not understanding the strategy at play. Cora and Frank are whisked through a hallway crowded with press, and both are screaming angrily at each other. Cora doesn't want Frank to get away with his part in the murder, so she tells Katz she wants to make a full confession. Katz invites a cop-looking fella into the room to record her confession on a typewriter, and she announces flat out that the two of them together conspired to murder her husband. That night, Katz heads across town to the offices of the insurance company that owns Nick's policy to speak to the expert witness. Katz reminds the man that $10,000 and his reputation at the company is on the line in this case, but offers an alternative. Because Frank has already been excused from prosecution, he is inarguably an employee of Cora's who sustained injuries in the course of the job. The business insurance for the station would have to pay out $25,000 to Frank for his injuries. The offer being made, if the expert witness reverses his testimony to indicate that the husband's injuries were consistent with the car accident, the owner of the business insurance policy is willing to put up $10,000 payout to save themselves the additional $15,000 they would be forced to pay Frank. What I don't quite understand is what's stopping Frank from suing for this 25000 afterward. Like, they can't get him to sign a contract that says, I won't well, sue for the money that I'm owed. No, because it looks like it's it's paid out. Well, the $25,000 is for injuries that he sustained as an employee of the station, which right. he still did. Right, but what, what they're saying is they're cutting their losses, so it, it is paid out, right? But the, the $10,000, the insurance company for the business is paying $10,000 to the insurance company for the life insurance. Right. Right. So it's... But that, but that wouldn't be paid out because they're doing that. That's a private exchange that they're making to pay that expert witness to change his testimony. They're not making that publicly. It's not. It doesn't look like it's getting paid out. Oh, I never mind. I'm thinking about it backwards. You're so right. they're, they're trying to avoid having to pay out the $25,000. But he's still an employee who was still injured in the course of his job who could still sue the business insurance and right. get $25,000. But maybe they made him sign some paperwork to say, I won't sue if you pay the $10,000 so that both of us get away with this yeah, crime. That would, that would get everybody in a lot of trouble, I would think, I would if that think, ever came yeah. up. We cut right to Frank being officially released from jail. Katz tells Frank that all the crimes the man insisted that he could charge Frank with were BS, 
and they had no evidence to work with. They bluffed him for the signature. Frank is equally dumbfounded to learn that Cora has been released as well after returning to a not guilty plea corroborated by the redacted testimony of the expert witness. But, uh, Confess? Yeah, luckily, though, she confessed to my assistant, Kennedy. A redheaded guy? Bet you thought he was a cop, huh? Yeah, I did. Uh-uh. He wasn't. Works for me. As they try to sneak out the back of the courthouse to avoid the press, they are confronted by Sackett, the prosecuting attorney, who is still fully convinced of their guilt and promises to keep their file open. Spit on the sidewalk and you'll die in jail. Hey, hey, turn to lose, eh? Frank is led to a taxi where Cora waits for him. It's an awkward ride back to the station for the two, who seem to turn on each other in court. Cora explains that she paid Katz the full $10,000 of Nick's life insurance policy, which she claims to have had no prior knowledge of. Frank apologizes for signing a statement against her, but she doesn't respond. In Nick and Cora's former bedroom, Frank starts packing up all of Nick's crap to get rid of. Later, we see Cora accept a delivery of matchboxes branded with the same Twin Oaks Tavern logo as the neon sign. From who? I don't know. The postman! Oh, did he ring more than once? I don't know. Yes, he did. It's in the title. But did he do it this time? I don't know. Oh, he always does it. Sorry, it's it's in the title. (laughs) Gotcha. The dining room is packed, and we can overhear a bit of gossip from customers who seem only to have come for a glimpse of the woman who certainly killed her husband for ownership of this place. Cora is having trouble serving everyone in a timely manner and heads out back to ask Frank for help, where she finds him painting rocks white. What are you doing? This isn't helping. Gotta keep those rocks from weathering. That's true. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> well, I, I think they're... To put on the side of the road. Yeah, 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 yeah. For no reason. Gotta have white rocks. Frank doesn't understand why she's working so hard to keep the diner afloat when her probation is up in two weeks and they can finally leave town. She tells him that he can leave now if he doesn't want to work. No reason to wait two weeks. That night, Frank is lying naked across their bed and Cora tries to shove him away with her legs a couple times so she can get some sleep and he forcibly climbs on top of her. They're wrestling violently until Frank buries his face between her thighs for a moment and then when he moves up to her face, she spits in his mouth, catching him off guard and we hard cut to Cora serving customers on another day. She steps out to the patio with some drink orders when she's approached by a man. I saw your picture in the paper. Join the club. Turns out the guy's an old friend of the family, and he's here with unfortunate news. It seems like he's here to inform her that her mother is very ill, but he has a real roundabout way of saying it. I get the courier still from home. And I wrote about your mother. I was pretty sure you didn't know. That's not how you'd say that to somebody. You, yeah. You tell her that she's sick. You don't You don't leave it at that. She leaves town to check on her mother before her probation is over, which I thought was going to be a problem, but nobody cares about it. Mm-hmm. Frank keeps the place running in her absence, though sloppily. I can't tell if it's standard procedure, but he's dumping all their garbage into a ravine behind the property. <laughs> <laughs> the next morning, Frank awakes to a honking horn. He informs the impatient customer that they are closed, but the guy assures him that it can't take more than a minute to gas him up. Where are you in? San Diego? We cut right to them on the road together, headed for San Diego. Turns out the guy's delivering lions to a circus troupe. We see Madge, a circus performer played by Angelica Houston, inspecting the cats and disappointed to find them so heavily sedated. She tells the ringmaster that drugged cats make unreliable performers and she won't risk getting in the ring with them. This is such a weird yeah like tangent like yeah. b plot yeah. like i was like what there's a circus in town we that just needs, wandered that into that a scene from cats. die laughing <laughs> <laughs> 
in the original one, it's like he just randomly sees a girl on the street. It's like, hey, yeah. let's go hang out. And she like, literally, yeah, okay. she finds him <laughs> at the gas station. Like he doesn't go out of town to find her. And it, yeah, and I find that to be more logical than right than the lion tamer. Right. <laughs> in accordance with Madge's wishes, the ringmaster refuses shipment. Frank approaches Madge in private to confirm her suspicion that the cats were drugged. He starts talking to a mountain lion in a small cage, and I was worried it was going to, like, hook into Jack here because it seems pissed off at him. She asks his name, and we cut practically from their introductions to a post-coital cigarette. She lights it with the Twin Oaks matchbook, and her whole body has a sheen of sweat, or possibly massage oil. The next morning, he emerges from Madge's trailer and returns to the station just in time for Cora to return. Her mother did not make it. She tells Frank that she's done a lot of thinking on the trip and that she's pregnant. And Frank seems genuinely excited by the news, which obviously pleases her. She pulls him aside for a hug while he drives her home, and they nearly collide head-on with another car. Back at the station, Frank confesses that he closed it for a week to head to San Francisco, but she's still so elated that he agreed to a family that she can't pretend to care about the station anymore. She begs Frank to forgive her for... what? Something. She says, forgive me, but I guess she wants forgiveness for... Taking the station seriously? Was that a huge deal? I, I guess I would th- say more for the confession. What? Like, why would she need forgiveness for that when he already put the blame on her before she made the confession? Yeah, but I, his, him blaming her uh, was like... Like I, he was coming out of surgery? Yeah, like, I, and it, it probably seemed like a somewhat safe bet. Like, even if she gets blamed for the car accident it's not blaming her for murder that's true because he wouldn't unless he were in on it he wouldn't know for sure that she was trying to do that yeah frank seems uncomfortable with the apology especially considering he just cheated on her while she was burying her mom and we cut to them sharing wine that night yeah and the music gets all like happy and i was like and i was like just gonna gloss over it yeah i was like Wait, am I supposed to like these people? <laughs> am I supposed to be like rooting for this relationship or or happy that things are working out so well for them? Because I don't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a persistent knock at the door, and in dealing with the man, Frank appears to recognize him. It's Mr. Kennedy, Katz's assistant who transcribed Cora's confession, though he announces right away he isn't working for Katz anymore. Kennedy tells Frank that he kept the confession he typed up, and he offers to sell it back to them. He asks 10000 for it, but Frank reminds him that the entire $10,000 insurance payout went to Katz. Kennedy doesn't seem to care and pulls a gun. Who cares? I just want the money. Get it for me. Hey. Sell the place. Bring me 10 or I mail a confession off the second and you die at the end. Chorus surprises the man from behind by shoving open a door, and Frank wrestles the gun away and then beats the shit out of the guy. He starts bashing the man's head with the kitchen door and demanding Kennedy fork over the confession, and Kennedy says it's at a vault at the Glendale Trust Bank. The next day, Frank leaves with Kennedy to collect the confession from the bank, and he doesn't return until late at night. The first sign he's got problems is that the door is locked. The dining tables are all littered with food as well. Nobody cleaned up, but they intentionally locked him out. Upstairs, he hears strange moans coming from Cora's room, and he pulls out a gun. When he kicks open the door, he finds Madge's mountain lion rolling around in the bed, and growling playfully. Cora has learned about the affair directly from Madge, who no doubt followed the matchbook here. Your friend came by. You bastard! 
Frank hands her the confession, but she's not impressed because she was already acquitted of the crime and can't legally be charged again. So all acquiring the confession does is clear Frank's name. Cora goes to make a phone call, but Frank hangs up the receiver and tears the device completely off the wall. We get a bit of a montage of the two of them spending time in the same room, but on opposite ends, never talking to each other. One morning, Cora wakes up freezing and wraps herself in a blanket. She announces the chill to Frank, as though inviting him to help her. He follows her downstairs and finds her staring off at the distant hills behind the station before joining her. Did they keep the puma? I hope so. <laughs> this is an important, important it's fact. An important, carry, caring for an exotic animal is a lot of work. <laughs> cool pumas, bro. It's going to eat the baby. <laughs> These bad boys are catalog only. Frank tells her he wants to marry her, and she assumes it's to keep her from testifying against him. I wanted to shut you up, but I shut you up. Frank goes further, suggesting they marry today, right now if possible. They kiss, and we dissolve to them exiting a church, officially married. They hop in their open-top car and head out for a riverside picnic. After the meal, they pack up the remains of the food and head back to the car. Frank asks for Cora's help lifting the car's ragtop, and she nearly collapses. Frank is very concerned and offers to rush her to a doctor. He's speeding down the road, but she just wants to go home now. Cora seems fully recovered and smiles about the beautiful scenery and the state of her life. She starts pulling him aside for more kisses and nearly causes a second head-on collision the same way. Frank notices at the last second and swerves drastically around the oncoming truck, but in the spin, Cora falls out of her side of the car, rolling through gravel and bashing her head on a rock on the side of the road. Frank can see that she's dead immediately and bursts into tears beside the body of his brand new wife and his unborn child within. He grips her bloodied hand in the dirt and we fade to black for the credits to roll. In the earlier version of this film and in the novel, Frank is brought in and charged with the death of Cora, though in the 46 version they make it abundantly clear that he's not actually being charged with Cora's murder, that he's being charged with Nick's murder because they found like a written confession in the house or in the station. Well, that's not really it, though. I mean, basically, they're like, we're charging you with Cora's murder and we're going to convict you of this, but it really doesn't matter because we could turn around and convict you of Nick's murder because of... But either way, he's, he's excited to learn that he would be charged with Nick's murder because that's the one that he deserves because the other one wasn't mm. intentional. Right. Right, right, right. But they but they already know that they, they tried to do that and they couldn't and the, it'll be easier to convict him of this. And so they're just going to convict him of Cora's murder, even though really they want to convict him of Nick's murder. Right. But that version closes with a drawn out over explanation of the film's title, which basically boils down to God is the postman and he tries to deliver this punishment earlier, but you missed it. So he's back again with the package. Boy, that's a really convoluted... Well, I, I was going to say, like, you were annoyed at this explanation in the first movie, but I was grateful because I was, otherwise I would have been really upset. Like, who is this postman? Why is he ringing? Yeah. Well, and then also, even though they don't show it in this version of the movie, the 81 version, but presumably Frank will at least be arrested after the events of, like, the final scene. Yeah. Like, I don't know for sure that he'll be put to death for it but the guy said he was going to get him for spitting on the sidewalk so you would think that the point is he's going to end up in jail at least and if not right uh yeah put to death he's, for he's going to get what he deserves and that's that's what the title means but here they make it very clear that when he crashes the car 
it's an accident because she's trying to kiss him and taking his mm-hmm. eyes off the road and they almost hit this other car yeah. and he couldn't have orchestrated it. But in the 46 version, it's very badly choreographed because it looks like he just It's supposed drives, to be an accident. It, it doesn't look enough like an accident. Mm. It, it almost looks it. on purpose and he just drives it head on into like something parked on the side of the road. It was a post, like, in, like a fence a post? post? No, not a postman. A man made out of posts. <laughs> the postman. And it goes, ding, ding. <laughs> but he runs it, like, he runs the car into, like, the passenger side of the car straight into this post. Yeah, and on it the looks like he's road. just trying to murder his passenger. <laughs> yeah. But even before that, there's this really weird scene. There's, like, this Gattaca moment where she's like, here, we're going to prove our love to each other. Because right now we're in this weird, questionable <laughs> moment where we don't know who cares about each other. So they go down to the beach and she says, we're going to swim out as far as we can to prove something. I don't get it. But she says, we're going to swim out as far as we can until we can't swim anymore. And then we'll help each other get back. And if one of us doesn't help the other one, then we know that they don't trust each other. And it's like, why are you assuming that you can both swim the same distance? Yeah. How is this proof of anything? What if you both drown, you idiots? <laughs> like, what is what is this a test of? And so they get back to shore. And then she's like, there, that's all the proof I needed. But the whole time you think she's going to kill him out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or something terrible is going to happen. She's going to pretend to be dead so that he carries her most of the way back. And then she swims off without him. But none of that happens. They just swim out and then they swing back. They just did a quick lap. And then he smashes her face first into a post <laughs> like 10 minutes later. Um, so it's very weird. But yeah, I, I definitely of the two versions, I prefer this one because I feel like that one spells everything out way too clearly. And I, I kind I, of liked that this one was. I think I needed that. That's fair. That's fair. Um, I, I also feel like this one expects you to at least have seen that one or read the book beforehand. So they kind of, they're kind of hoping that you come to it with some knowledge did of the plot. You, did you see, had you seen the other one before you watched this one? The first time? Yeah. Um, I think I'd read the book. Okay. But, uh, but I had some idea version. of the story coming into this one. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew, I knew what, because uh, James uh, M. M. Kane, which we'll talk about, the author, also wrote Double Indemnity. And I always used to confuse those two stories, mm. but they're very similar stories. And so I, I had the story of Double Indemnity in my head when I sat down to watch this. Right. Well, and she, I think she says that at some point, like it's the same, it's the same thing where she's just like, they're not after me. They're, they're going to be after you. If, right. if we don't get this, if we don't get, if we get the confession back, they can't convict me for it. Well, that's double jeopardy. Yeah. Oh, double indemnity. Sorry. <laughs> double indemnity is where insurance pays out twice as much in the event of like a violent accident mm-hmm. death. Oh, okay. Which they used to give to flight attendants for situations like plane crashes or uh terrorist hijackings but then on 9-11 when it happened american airlines was like well no that was a war so that doesn't count as double indemnity because they wanted to cheat a bunch of dead flight attendants out of their double indemnity wow. insurance packages yeah. did that fly yeah it that flew <laughs> shit <laughs> flew right into a building you monster i did i just meant <laughs> no i know what you meant Right on they cue. got away with it right on cue here comes an airplane yeah american <laughs> airlines can do whatever they want they filed for bankruptcy and then wrote everybody huge checks in the executive office i think that um i really like the performances from everybody obviously the yeah. the set design is beautiful all the cinematography is beautiful um yeah it's, but the story is a little rambly yeah it's really 
long. It feels like a book is what it feels <laughs> like. <laughs> it feels like, it, is it a feels book. like a well-adapted <laughs> book. Well, because, I mean, really, like 90% of the movie takes place in one location. Right. Uh, and it, it feels very much like a stage drama because of yeah. that. Yeah, it was it was well made. I just yeah, I I think that it it didn't it didn't need to be made. <laughs> I, it was well made, but why? <laughs> I I think I was I was waiting for there to be a likable character of some. You didn't some, like John Colicos? Uh, I mean, he was great, right? He, he was fine, I guess. He had a I, foot thing; it was a little weird, but yeah. And I, I was waiting for like. <laughs> Like maybe he was like you know overly, overly masculine and like yo you're the woman you should come when I say and rub yeah my you feet. expect him to hit her or something yeah. at least once yeah I was like I was like did I miss that he beats her or something and he's like mistreats her because the worst thing he does is like be a shitty husband yeah <laughs> he doesn't deserve ball bearings to the brain <laughs> I, I also feel like and I think they had this a little bit more in the older one, but I wanted more of a backstory about why the hell she's here. Because mm-hmm. like, I feel like that understanding why she's trapped in this relationship would be really important in terms of her motivation for getting with this skeezy guy who isn't all that appealing and nice. I don't understand. And like you said, they do spell that out a little bit more in the first movie, which is that she wanted to make it in california and things didn't work out for her and so she married a guy with money basically right and that she's his the first pet guy now. to ask yeah what what i expected this movie to become was jack nicholson's like a scummy guy meets this woman and the woman sees her opportunity to kill her husband by way of this guy right by manipulating yeah Correct. not falling in love with Correct. And so that's why when the yeah. money comes up in the hospital and you're like oh this is where he finds out that she set him up yeah uh, but that never happens, right? And and I was like, oh, hold on, then. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're, you're you're both just terrible people. I, yeah. I I I I mean, I can I can not like Jack Nicholson, but but sympathize that he's been set up as a fall guy, right? Yeah, totally. Um, like he's still a murderer, but but you know maybe she was gonna like say, oh, is he? he? Yes, he murdered Nick. <laughs> Did he? Yeah. We don't know. Maybe he died in the car accident. Oh. That he, he pushed him, him off of the cliff. <laughs> on accident. No, he, he didn't. Uh, yes, totally. he did. He leaned on the steering wheel by accident and the thing fell no, the, the extra first, way. The first, the first, first, the first one didn't kill him. <laughs> Nick was fine after that. Airbags, they kill more people than they help. Sprinkler system in the back of the car. Can you believe it? <laughs> Uh, what an obscure reference <laughs> <laughs> will you play nintendo with me i can't think of anyone else i'd rather play nintendo with i was asking jesse <laughs> no <The end. laughs> um but yeah um i think we agree that the story's a little shaky but that's the, the book's fault i think in terms of filmmaking they did a decent job of it yeah I can agree with that. I, I, I still give it a thumbs up. I think that it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, thumbs it's, up. it's a high quality movie and, and overall I liked it. Richard hated these people. He's not giving it a thumbs up. I'm not giving it a thumbs up. I need to be the voice of dissent in this. I, I'm fine. sure I, you were going to say the voice of reason. I don't think it's reasonable to just give this movie a thumbs down because I didn't like the characters. But uh, I, I think that it helps like establish our overall feeling like two up and one down is like okay yeah that's fair that's fair yeah 
I mean, I yeah, I feel middle of the road about it because I feel like I I would recommend this film to somebody who cares a lot about filmmaking because it's a well-made film, very well-made film. Aside from the weird story. <laughs> <laughs> um, Letterbox, what are you thinking, Jess? Oh God, I didn't even put it on my Letterbox. Oh my yet. God. <gasps> You surprised me again with the letterbox ranking. This new segment. Richard, I know you already have it. Yeah, I mean, but I'm really like troubled with it, oh, but dear. I'm just going to just going to do it. Um, I'm going to have it at 24. Okay. Uh, which puts it below American Pop, but above Cabo Blanco. All right. I actually have it right above American Pop. Um, I have it in 10th place. Uh, and that's just below the howling. Okay, I have it at uh, number twenty-three. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, which is uh, below Cabo Blanco, but above Atlantic City. So it's right between two cities. <laughs> yeah, and I I feel like it's really on par with those movies where I'm like I like the filmmaking of both of these movies, like Cabo Blanco and Atlantic City are well-made films which were kind of lacking in story and i feel like this goes right in there yeah that makes sense i haven't i'm just realizing now that i haven't looked at my top 10 in a while it's like oh <laughs> there's some weird movies up in here <laughs> well we're, we're getting to the good stuff <laughs> our director here was bob rafelson he was the co-creator of the monkeys and executive producer of their series and the film head which is where he met screenwriter and performer Jack Nicholson, with whom he would collaborate on Easy Rider as producer and Five Easy Pieces as producer and director, which we covered last year as a Patreon review. He also has a story credit on Brubaker last year, but he was fired off of that film, I think. Writer David Mamet, he is a famed playwright, possibly best known for his 1984 play Glengarry Glen Ross, which he adapted himself into the 1992 film. He wrote and directed Homicide, The Spanish Prisoner, and Heist, and wrote the screenplays for The Verdict, The Untouchables, Hoffa, Wag the Dog, and Hannibal. Novelist James M. Kane is a hard-boiled crime novelist best known for his novels The Postman Always Rings Twice, Mildred Pierce, and Double Indemnity, each of which were adapted into popular films in reverse order in the 40s and have since been readapted. His novel Butterfly was also adapted in 82 the following year. The music is from Michael Small. He scored Clute, The Parallax View, Stepford Wives, Night Moves, the Drowning Pool, Marathon Man, and the Pumping Iron documentary that kicked off Schwarzenegger's career. Last year, we heard his work in Those Lips, Those Eyes, and he's back later this season for Continental Divide and Rollover. After that, he scored Jaws the Revenge and Wagons East, among others. Cinematographer Sven Nykvist is a Swedish cinematographer best known for his collaborations with Ingmar Bergman, Cries and Whispers, Fanny and Alexander. He partnered with Woody Allen for Crimes and Misdemeanors, Another Woman, New York Stories, and Celebrity, and last year he lensed Paul Mazursky's Willie and Phil. Editor Graham Clifford, this was his last editing credit. It was preceded by cutting Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, and The Man Who Fell to Earth. Jack Nicholson played Frank Chambers. We've gone back and forth over Jack's credits. This is his second with director Rafelson for the podcast after Five Easy Pieces last year. He was in The Shining, which took the top spot on all three of our 1980 lists, and he's back later this year for Reds, which I think is the Vintage Video Season 2 finale, if we get that far. Jessica Lange played Cora Papadakis. Her debut film was as Dwan in the 1976 King Kong, and then All That Jazz. I haven't seen it recently. Is it pronounced Dawn, and it's just spelled wrong? 
It's spelled D-W-A-N, which is a point they make in the movie in the 76 King Kong. Have you seen that recently? Uh, I haven't seen it in a long while. Okay. I saw it fairly recently, but I don't remember her being called Dewan. Maybe she's just called Dawn, but it's spelled D-W-A-N, and they make a point about how her parents thought it was unique or something like that. Very weird. We saw her last year in her third film, How to Beat the High Cost of Living, and next is Tootsie. Later, she shows up in Cape Fear, Titus, Broken Flowers, and more recently, she was Joan Crawford for Feud Betty and Joan, which might be why I used to confuse her with Faye Dunaway. John Kolakos played Nick Papadakis. He was Captain DeWitt, whose police car flipped in The Changeling last year. He was also Barnes and John Huston's Phobia. So he's been in at least two flipped over cars for a death scene Mm -hmm. on the podcast. Michael Lerner played Mr. Katz. We saw him last year in Baltimore Bullet, Borderline, and Coast to Coast. He was Gantner in The MacGyver Pilot. He's Jack Lipnick in Barton Fink, Biderman in Blank Check, Mayor Ebert in Godzilla, and dozens of much better films. (laughs) Angelica Houston played Madge. She's the Grand High Witch in The Witches. She's Morticia Adams in the Adams Family movies. And she's Eleanor Zisu in The Life Aquatic. But insanely, none of these completely perfect performances is even my favorite of hers. That honor belongs to Jan Brown, Billy Brown's football-obsessed mother in Buffalo 66. She and her grandfather, Walter Houston, were both directed to Oscar wins by her father, John Houston. Walter won Best Supporting Actor for John Houston's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and Angelica won hers for Supporting Actress in 85 for John Houston's Pritzi's Honor with Jack Nicholson. She and Nicholson began a relationship in 73 that lasted until 1990. In that span of time, they appeared together in four films, Cuckoo's Nest, The Last Tycoon, This, and Pritzi's, and they reunited for The Crossing Guard in 95. She was not in Chinatown, but she was dating Nicholson at the time, which obviously makes the exchange between Jack as Jake Giddies and her father John Houston as Noah Cross a little more uncomfortable. Disturbs me, man. He thinks you're taking my daughter for a ride. Financially speaking, of course. What are you charging her? My usual fee. What's the bonus if I get results? Are you uh, sleeping with her? Come, come, Mr. Gibbs. You don't have to think about that, remember. Yeah. If you want an answer to that question, Mr. Cross, I'll put one of my men on the job. William Trailer played Sackett. He was General Catbird in Buckaroo Banzai. He is an uncredited party guest in Colossus the Forbin Project. And he was one of the Pinkertons in The Long Riders last year. He's Mr. Underhill in Fletch and Fletch 2. <laughs> Thomas Hill played Barlow. He was Carl Conrad Coriander in NeverEnding Story 1 and 2. Last year we had him as Bobby Momisa in Hide in Plain Sight and the president in The Nude Bomb. John Van Ness played the motorcycle cop. He was Zaranska in Brubaker and Deputy Dave in Ruckus, the one who was trying to hit on the girl whose husband died. Ken Meiji played Scoutmaster. He was Sheriff Cronin in Leprechaun. He's Mr. Sprinkles in Mrs. Doubtfire, which is the mailman guy that delivers the mail to uh, Mrs. Doubtfire's children's television show. Okay, okay. Eugene Peterson plays the doctor. He was the head mixer in Modern Romance. The guy who told him space floor, I think. (laughs) The guy who was uh, not being cooperative when Mm -hmm. Albert Brooks was trying to figure out how to mix the scene. Don Kalfa played Goebel. He was Ernie in Return of the Living Dead. And Polly, Vito's hitman, in Weekend at Bernie's. 
Dick Balduzzi played Sign Man number one. He was Phil in Fatso. He just passed away in January of last year, which is impressive because he played Old Man in Zorro the Gay Blade later this season. Lionel Mark Smith played Crapshooter. He was Maurice in Galaxina last year, the Vulcan-looking crewman who works in the bottom of the ship with the Confucius spouting character. Mm -hmm. Brian James played another Crapshooter. He was Leon Kowalski in Blade Runner. He's Hobart in Silverado. He's Stubbs in Enemy Mine. And he's General Monroe in The Fifth Element. Frank Arno played another one of the Crapshooters, and he was one of the poker players in Papa Thorson's place in The Hunter last year. Virgil Fry played another crapshooter. He was a biker in Hell's Angels on Wheels and Easy Rider, both of which star Jack Nicholson. He was a bandit leader in Borderline last year, and he was just McGregor, the school security guard, in Graduation Day, the guy that we kind of liked that was just making fun of himself the whole time. Mm -hmm. Kenneth Servey played another crapshooter. He seems to be a friend of Nicholson's. All of his credits are on Nicholson films. William H. McDonald played the bailiff. He was a stage manager in Hero at Large. He plays a conductor in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and we'll see him next as Hurley in our very next episode, Death Hunt. Elsa Raven played Matron. She was Phil's wife in Fatso last year. She played Hannah Lee in American Pop earlier this season, and she's back as a prenatal nurse in Paternity later this season. She's best known as the Save the Clock Tower lady from Back to the Future, and like her husband Phil from Fatso, we just lost her in November of last year. So another recent death. Kopi Sotoropoulos played a Greek mourner. He was a reporter in American Gigolo. He was a limo passerby in Private Benjamin. I think that's when they're having sex in the limousine and someone walks by the window. Mm. And an uncredited taxi driver in 9 to 5 last year. I think that's the guy who's driving the taxi when they have the body in the trunk. Or they think they have a dead body in the trunk, but it's the wrong body. Glenn Shaddix played one of the Twin Oaks customers. I did not see him in the movie, and I looked for him pretty yeah, hard. Did same. you see him in there? Um, There was a couple people I thought could have been him yeah. but you know it's it's like the earliest thing that i really know him from is Beetle beetlejuice Juice. yeah though this is his first film uh he's father ripper in heathers and he's the voice of the two-headed mayor in nightmare before christmas but he's no doubt best known as otho in beetlejuice uh his second film which was six years after this so he did this he waited six years he did that those are his two earliest performances uh he's also in demolition man a few episodes of dinosaurs multiplicity the mask animated series hercules legendary journeys yeah i was gonna say i just was gonna say i remember him from the hercules <laughs> legendary journey and he was also on carnival which i still haven't seen any of carolyn Coates played another twin oaks customer she'll be mother superior and mommy dearest later this season and christopher lloyd was the salesman at the beginning of the film he made his feature film debut in jack nicholson's one flew over the cuckoo's nest and later reteamed for going south so far on the podcast, we've discussed his work in The Black Marble and Schizoid from 1980, and he's back later this season for The Legend of the Lone Ranger. Throughout the 80s, he'll play the immortal characters of Commander Krug in Search for Spock, John Big Boutet in Buckaroo Banzai, Doc Brown in Back to the Future, Professor Plum in Clue, and Judge Doom in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Of course, he would also play brother-in-law Uncle Fester to Madge actress Angelica Houston's Morticia Adams in the Adams Family films. Chuck Liddell played one of the Boy Scouts. He's a mixed martial artist and former UFC light heavyweight champion. His second accredit doesn't appear for another 20 years until his appearance basically as himself in How High. He apparently appears in the Blade TV series, and he's Aldo in Passion Play, himself in Kick-Ass 2, and Uncle Mike in Workaholics. But uh, I saw the kid 
that grew up to be Chuck Liddell in the movie. He's, he has the same face, mm-hmm. and uh, he's just on the right side of the camera right when they're starting to dig into the meal. But uh, those are all the credits I had for this one. I think that's everything for The Postman Always Rings Twice. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Oh, what's that sound? We got one! Oh, that's right. It's a new patron, my good friend VJ Boyd, who might be joining us soon for our review of Peter Hyam's Outland. As a patron, VJ now has access to 20 full-size 70s reviews and 14 minisodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Death Hunt, which IMDb describes like so. In 1931 Canada, Yukon trapper Johnson has a feud with a dog owner who later retaliates by publicly accusing Johnson of murder and thus triggering a police manhunt in the wilderness. We leave you now with the trailer for Death Hunt. Johnson, we've got a bad situation out here. I have a bunch of savages out here just aching to splatter you all over the place. They don't want your side told. Now, if you don't come in with me, that's all the excuse they'll need. They'll either kill you or get themselves killed trying. You can't stop it. Hold it! They fight for the same cause. They live by the same code. But now, the law has made them enemies. Death Hunt, based on the true story of one of the greatest manhunts ever. If anybody's gonna bring Albert Johnson in, it's gonna be me. Not some bounty hunter or a fly boy bucking for promotion. Why you? Why are you so special? He deserves me. Lee Marvin has the badge and the determination to get his man. Would it make any difference if I waited? If I left now, I'd never know what it would have been like with you. Let's go! He's the last man in the world that anybody'd want on his trail. Charles Brunson has the wilderness. We've been hunting a man that knows how to live off the land and use the terrain. As you can see, he was one of the American best trained men, special intelligence squad in the war. And the will to be free. Pure fact is he's running to save his eye. And every man he killed, he killed to protect himself. Well, what about Hawkins or Sundog or any of them? What did any of them die for, Millen? Johnson didn't do anything I wouldn't do if I was in his boots. If I thought the killing had stopped here, I'd let him go. Charles Brunson, Lee Marvin, Death Hunt. Two men of equal courage face each other as enemies and triumph as heroes along the last frontier. There he is! We got it! Death Hunt.